you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Psalms? Psalms. If you're new to the scriptures, it's kind of in the middle, or if you have an electronic version on your phone, Psalms. Chapter 46 is where we are today. Psalm 46. And as you're turning there, um, I want to just try to frame uh, kind of where we are going as a church. We, we, take, we take books of the Bible and we work through those books, um, allowing God's Word, which we believe the Bible is, to shape our direction, and He dictates what we go through. We just finished the book of 1 Peter, and we're gonna, we've taken a few weeks now. What we're going to do is just try to hone in on some specific topics. So last week, Pastor Travis did, I thought, a wonderful job of caring for us by teaching us about a God who loves all peoples, and it's too light a thing for His glory to just be known by one person or one group of people, but by all peoples. Today, we're going to take a message from Psalm 46 entitled, Treasuring Christ Above All. Treasuring Christ Above All. That's the direction we're going, and it will shape kind of that we're unified around a common vision. Next week, um, we're going to do an outdoor service. Yep, we're going to give it a shot, one more, and it's going to be in the morning at 11 a.m. If we do it at the previous times, it'll be really dark. So it'll be at 11 a.m., one service next week, outdoors, in the side field, uh, and we are going to be going through Psalm 47, um, and we're going to be looking at the title of the message is, Who is on the Throne? In the midst of this election series, when we're really worried about who is going to take a position or an office I think we need to be reminded, not about the politics of our world, but about the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus, that Jesus is on his throne. And so we're going to look at that next week, Psalm 47. I'm looking forward to that. Then the following week, we're going to have one more message where we are talking about how can we be unified in the midst of disagreement. If there's ever a season in our world where it's hard to find unity and it's easy to find disagreement. The church needs to be standing together to understand the answer to that message. How can we be unified in the midst of disagreement? So we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll also look again at Romans 14 and work through that. Now, after that, we're going to start a new series called Praying the Psalms. Praying the Psalms. And that'll go from November 15th all the way to the end of the year. And so it'll be a study and a meditation on what's called Book 2 of the Psalms, which is Psalm 42 to Psalm 72. We obviously won't be able to hit all of them, but we'll be hitting different Psalms all the way through the end of the year. So that's where we're headed. We'll tell you more about other things coming up later. But next week, outdoor service, 11 a.m., as we get to study Psalm 47, which follows the Psalm we're in today, which is Psalm 46. So what I want to do is I want to read two verses of Scripture, Psalm 46, verse 1, and Psalm 46, verse 2. Four, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive right in, okay? Word of God says this, Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then skip down to verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this moment that I would decrease and you would increase. That the truth of the glories of Christ 
would shine so brightly that we can't take our eyes off of your beauty. Would so capture our hearts that we surrender our whole lives to you. We allow you to frame our purpose and our existence and all that we do. Jesus, have your way with us. For any who are listening in person or online who have never surrendered their lives to you, God, I pray that they would hear today the glorious gospel message. Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died on a Roman cross as a sacrificial lamb, taking all of our sins upon his shoulders, all of our shame and guilt that we deserved. And he rose from the dead three days later so that if we would trust in him, confess our sins, place our faith in him, we can be forgiven, washed, made new, a part of his family. And he comes and lives inside of us. Father, that glorious gospel message, I pray, would lead to repentance and faith in the lives of people today, a turning from sin and a trusting in you. And as we think about what it means to treasure Christ above all, take our hearts and make it a reality. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you know what something is for, when you know its purpose, there is a sense that the labor gets lighter and the fulfillment gets greater. Here's what I mean. A watch is not a hammer. So if you take a watch and you try to hammer in a nail, one, it will be really bad for the watch, and two, is the nail probably won't get very far. So the fulfillment is less and the labor is more difficult. What about a cell phone? If you think a cell phone is a Frisbee rather than a communication device, you'll be wasting a lot of money and it will be broken such that it doesn't fulfill its original purpose. And now as we gather together as a church, we've got to ask ourselves, what is our purpose? Because if we don't get it, the labor will be heavier and the fulfillment will be diminished. What is our purpose? What, what unifies us as a church? Why do we come together? Well, we've stated it in a sentence. It says this. As a church, we exist to be and make disciples who treasure Christ, love the church, love the city, and love the world. But unless you miss it, the purpose of the church is first about being. It's not about doing. All of the religions have at their core, do for God that he might accept you. At the core foundation of Christianity is you cannot do, he has done in your place, rest in what he has done for you. Because of that acceptance then, you will live a life of love. Be a disciple so that then as you feel his love, you make disciples. But here's what happened. Pastor Travis came into a we have elders meetings, pastors meeting. Pastor Travis came in and he was talking about interaction with this one church group. And this one church group, it was, he was asked like, okay, what are you about? And multiple people in this group, they could articulate what they were about. They were about this, a mission and a community that had a phrase and a slogan and everybody kind of knew it and they were unified around this mission and purpose. And I thought, if we're asked as Treasuring Christ Church, what are we about? What's unique about this place? What, what do you desire to be known for? What would the answer be? 
I think some would say, well, we believe the Bible. We love the Bible. Or we're a people of prayer. We're a house of prayer. So we, we are desperately praying to God. Others might say, well, the community, there's a, there's a community here. There's relationships that are able to go deep here. Others might say, well, we exist to reach lost people or to build strong families or to be a, a multi-ethnic community that shows off the glory of God. Whatever you might use there, the question is, what are we about as a church? And I love all those things. All those things are great. They're God's design for the people of God. But what are we known for? Rather than being individual islands, you've gotten up early to gather here or to gather online as a part of treasuring Christ's church. Why? Why gather with this group of people in this city? Something is calling you to get out of bed and to move and to go, to give your time and your resources to serve one another. Why? Why are we a church? If we don't know it, we'll be off a true north. We won't end up where we're supposed to be going. Why are we gathering? Friends, we are better together and convinced that we're better together Because I pray that there's no other final answer than this. We treasure Christ above all. What unites us is that we treasure Jesus above all. We treasure Christ together. This is not a slogan or a title of a church. It's a way of life. Treasuring Christ is not one among many things that we do as Christians. It's not like you treasure Christ and then you read your Bible and then you pray and then you do community and you reach lost people and you build strong families. That's not how this works. No. Treasuring Christ is a way of life. When we sit down to read our Bibles, we stop to read the Scriptures because we want to encounter a person. His name is Jesus. And as we spend time with Him, our hearts broaden and we treasure Christ. We treasure Christ in Bible reading. When we stop to pray, we pray because we want our hearts to be filled with a love for Jesus. When we gather and do community, it's not first about friendship. Although friendship is a gift from God, the question is, how can we as friends or how can we as a church point one another to treasure Jesus Christ? We don't just go out and talk about Jesus so that Numbers can grow. That doesn't, that's not the point. The point is so that other people could experience the love and grace of Jesus, that they might treasure Christ. We don't seek to be a multi-ethnic community or care for the poor because it's some fancy thing to do or it's a, just a good deed thing. It's so that we would show the multifaceted, Ephesians 2, the multifaceted wisdom and glory of God when unity relates in diversity for the glory of God. Friends, treasuring Christ is not one thing. It is everything. And we treasure Christ above all. He is our deepest delight. He is a diamond that has so many facets. We will never tire of looking at him and we will never exhaust them all. So dear church, we need a vision. 
We need a vision bigger than ourselves and bigger than our families and bigger than this church and bigger than this country. We need a vision of Christ. And we gather together to treasure Him above everything. I need you. You need me. But I must confess, although that's the aim It can be difficult, right? We believe, many of us believe that to be true, but our experience might feel lacking. We might know and believe that Jesus is our ultimate rest and we are satisfied in him and we want to treasure him above all things, and yet the winds of our current world, trials, anxieties, difficulties, they distract us. We feel buffeted by the waves of adversity and they hit us. And so when we talk about this, it feels like almost a distant reality, maybe even a fairy tale. We're going to treasure Christ above all. And also, doesn't it feel sometimes almost impractical, like theoretical? Like, what does that even mean to treasure Jesus above all things? And then if you're honest... Can't it just feel like one more thing on your to-do list? Okay, I just painted a picture. This is what the Christian life is about. Treasure Jesus in all that you do. And then I think, I failed in that this week. And so what you hear is, he's just given me one more thing to do that I fail in. And I just want to hold before you that when we say treasure Christ above all, It is not a statement of what you are to do for him. It is a statement of do you believe what he has done for you. The Christian life is not at its essence doing for Jesus. It's receiving what he has already accomplished on the cross of Calvary and in his resurrection for you. We come as recipients. What do you have, the Bible says, that you have not received? You've received everything. We owe all to Him. And so, as we gather in this moment, Psalm 46 comes on the scene. And it's not just painting a picture of a future reality, but it's painting a picture of something that is possible for the people of God right now. That we would experience the gladness of God in receiving His love for us right now. Now, No doubt, there is a reality to treasure Jesus above all, and then there's this massive gap, and there's our experience. It's called sin, right? We sin, there's sin around us, and part of that causes us to long for heaven when that sin will be no more, and suffering will be no more, and we'll be in his presence face to face. Like, I get that, but what we're asking for right now is, how does that gap of reality and experience How does that shrink? How how do we experience what we believe to be true? That Christ is enough. He is all satisfying. That our rest is found in Him. And He is all that we need. Psalm 46 answers that question. What does treasuring Christ look like? In three things. If you look at the psalm, it's divided into three sections. 
It has three what's called selahs. Selah means to stop and to think on what you've just heard. So it's pretty easy on how you divide this thing. It's got three sections. And so we'll frame it this way. We treasure Christ above all because he is, one, abundantly present, two, all-satisfying, and three, he will be exalted in all the earth. How do we treasure Jesus above all? One, because he is abundantly present. He is, two, all-satisfying, and he will be exalted in all the earth. Let's look at the first one. We treasure Christ above all because he is abundantly present. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. The Word of God says this, God is, there's a statement right there about His nature. He is our refuge and strength, a very present or exceedingly present or abundantly present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Think on these things. Selah, it says. So let's look at the passage. And this whole sermon is going to be trying to demonstrate what it looks like to slow down rather than read through quickly. We're slowing down and we're looking at these words. We believe these words are God's words. So let's look at it. God is our refuge and strength. There is something about Him... He's strong and he's a protector. And there's something about his presence. He is a very present help in time of trouble that flips fear upside down. Isn't that what that means? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, no matter what cataclysmic event happens, I won't be afraid. There's something about the nature of God and his presence with us that flips fear upside down. The text is asking you, think about what you are most afraid of. The argument here is from the greater to the lesser. He's taking something that if you were to conceive of it, it would be only normal that you would be afraid. Okay? Like, if you stare out a window and a mountain falls in front of your eyes into the sea, a mountain, I'm not talking about just like a little part, like a whole mountain, boom, in the water. Something's going to happen in your heart, and it's probably going to be a cry. Like that, like, it, it's going to be like, ah, yeah, that's exactly right. You're not in control. It's fear. And he pushes forward. Mountains moved in the heart of the sea. The earth gives way. Think about an earthquake, this shaking, this splitting of the, of the ground and it's swallowing things up. Or it says the waters rage and foam. Think about a tsunami, not just strong waves, but something that just wipes away whole cities like that. He's asking you, what makes you afraid? He's saying, think of something that should normally evoke fear. And the psalm says there is something greater. There is something greater than your greatest fear. And it is a God who is a refuge and strength. And a God who is abundantly present. Not just in the good times. But when you think he's most absent, right? 
You're tempted to buy into like he's present when things are good, but it's in the times of trouble when you say, no, God is absent, or he's not powerful, or he's not good. Verse 5, later on in this text says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. There's this sense that God is in the midst of His people. He's with His people. And that is meant to bring deep comfort in the midst of fear. So right out of the gate, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. The literal translation could be, God is our shelter, Refuge, a fortress, and God is our strength. He's strong and He doesn't get weak. And an abundantly found help in trouble. I love that. He's, he's found a lot. Let's think about abundance. When I say the word abundance, look at these sunflowers on this picture. That's just something that might help you understand abundance, right? Like, there is no end in that picture to these sunflowers. It's just like they just keep going and going and going. What about these crops here? Next one. Rows and rows of crops, far as the eye can see. It's this sense of abundance, never-ending. Well, in America, we also know that those crops lead to food, and we have tons and tons of food and so you have multiple colors and multiple types and many of us don't lack for food ever especially in America it's abundant we get it and what about water the ocean you just stand at the coast and you look out and there seems to be no end in sight there's abundant water in the ocean And so when God comes to us and He describes His presence as abundant, He is meaning for your heart and your brain to meditate on what abundance means. It means there's no end. It's an endless supply. It goes on and on. It does not diminish. There is no drought with Him. There's no lack with Him. He is always with you. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. But here's my question. How does it affect our lives if we are convinced of His abundant presence? Just think about it. Like, this passage is meant to say whether you have the momentary anxiety or whether you have the most kind of life-threatening fear and everything in between, God's abundant presence brings a sense of peace and freedom from fear. How does that matter to you? How does that affect your life if you're convinced in His abundant presence? Because sometimes we live like the disciples. There's a story in the Bible called the feeding of the 5,000. When He's feeding the 5,000, what happens? He asks His disciples, do we have any food? And they come back to Him And they say, we have only five loaves and two fish. We have only five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, that's enough. 
Because in this moment, he's wanting to teach that there are two types of eyes through which we look. We look at things physically, or we look at things spiritually. Physically, the disciples were right. We just got five loaves and two fish. That's all we have. But that word only inserted in there shows that they're not convinced that spiritually speaking, we have everything that we need in Jesus. And Jesus comes into that moment and he says, it's okay, it's enough. And in that only moment, in those moments when what we see with our eyes feels so limiting, so debilitating, he asks us to look with different eyes. Spiritual eyes, eyes that see that He is abundant in His presence. He is abundant in His work. And so, the psalmist is teaching us a valuable lesson about God is not scarce in His supply. The disciples thought there wasn't enough food there to feed all these people. And Jesus said, it's enough. Because I am with you. Hudson Taylor, I've been reading a book on his biography. He says this, So if God places me in serious perplexity or confusion, must He not give me much guidance? If I'm in positions of great difficulty, won't He give me much grace? And circumstances of great pressure in trial, won't He give me much strength? No fear that His resources will prove unequal to the emergency. And His resources are mine, for He is mine, and He is with me, and He dwells within me. What's Hudson Taylor saying? There will never be a trial that you experience where His abundant presence will not exceed the trial. There will never be a moment of confusion where His abundant presence is not promising to guide you where you need to go. His presence matters. And sometimes when we look with our eyes, we fear. But when we look with our spiritual eyes, that He is abundantly with us, not ever lacking in supply, endless rows and rows and seas and seas of His love for us, then it's meant to still our hearts and swallow up fear because He is with us at all times. The question is, do we trust Do we trust Him to be present or absent? Resources abundant or lacking? The Bible says here, 46.1, God is our refuge and strength. He is our strength in that our weaknesses are an opportunity for His power to be shown off and He is present. He is our present protection. That protection does not mean the eradication of suffering. We just went through all of that in 1 Peter. Don't be surprised, church, you're going to suffer. But it does mean His presence in the midst of it. He's constantly making us more like Jesus, and He is constantly working for our good. So, treasuring Christ above all, we treasure Him because He is abundantly present, but we also treasure Him because He is all-satisfying. Here's why this is important. If we said that He was abundant and with us, but His abundance was a toxic poison, then that wouldn't be very comforting. 
What's the content of his abundance? The content of his abundance is he is all satisfying. Or as the text will tell us, he makes our hearts glad. Look at chapter 46, verse 4. There is a river, it says. The river is God himself. Whose streams make glad the city of God. The city of God are the people of God. And how does he make us glad? It's that he takes up residence inside the city. Isn't that what it says? The holy habitation of the Most High. God the Most High dwells in the city. That is, he dwells in his people. And that is a river running to this city, making that city glad. When I say you've got joy or gladness, there's a sense that you don't have a a sense of lack. There's the sense of you have everything you need. There's peace in place of fear. There's thanksgiving in place of complaining. There's hope in place of despair. When you talk about you've made me glad or joyful, it's a summary statement that I am satisfied. The river of God, God himself, satisfies God's people. And what we see here is this image of God as a river. Now, I ride my bike sometimes. And when I ride my bike, I ride it along the Noose River. My house is about a quarter of a mile from the Noose River Trail, the Greenway. And so sometimes I do that. As one pastor described it, he says he goes at the pace of prayer, which means I don't try to... This is the battle for me because I'm a competitive person, and so sometimes I'm trying to beat my last mark, you know, ride faster or, you know, go further, those kind of things. But what I'm fighting for is that this is a time when I commune with God. And I love it because it's beautiful out there, and when I ride, I'm riding along the Noose River. And so as I was riding, I was listening to this book, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, his autobiography and or his biography and as I was sitting there listening to this book I just heard about what a great man of faith he is he's a great man of faith he was so burdened and I've shared this before but just follow with me he was so burdened for lost people burdened that one million Chinese individuals were dying every month that he sacrificed his life, he sacrificed his time, he changed his entire trajectory of what he was doing because he was so burdened for these people who were dying without Jesus. He was a great man of faith. And not only that, he was so filled with faith that he lived on very little. He lived on very little financial resources and he intentionally located his life in order to be in and among those that were in need. And you just step back and you look at even when he had little, he trusted the Lord and he was praying for God to provide. And you saw God provide in some miraculous, amazing ways. He had faith. And then you see how he changed even his dress in order to become all things to all people so there'd be no barriers between him and these individuals that he was trying to reach with the gospel. And he went into inland China where people would not go, and he was proclaiming Jesus there, a man of great faith. And he even used his medical degree 
to insert himself in areas of difficulty and deep poverty to care both physically and spiritually for those in need. And I just looked at that face, but if you're honest, this is what happened to me. Sometimes lives can be so inspiring, they're depressing, right? It's like, dude, I'm not there, right? Like, admire, 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 fail, 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 fail. You know, it's just like, I, I felt this overwhelming sense of like, this guy is superhuman in his faith. How does he do all this? This almost feels unattainable. And then you feel like, a, a, you know, definitely second class, low level, you know, kind of pine scum or whatever, as you're kind of assessing your life in light of this. And then I kept reading. And what became readily apparent is what should be readily apparent to all those that we admire. There's only one. There's only one that's superhuman and perfect. And his name is Jesus. Because as I kept reading, there was a, a large season of Hudson Taylor's life where he lived in discouragement. And there was an entirely different, lest you think discouraged, life was solved, there was an entirely different season when he was battling with despair, seeing the sin in his own life. And began, he began to talk about it like this. There, there, there was a gap between what I believed and how I was living. There was this gap. How, how can that gap be closed? How can I experience the nearness of God? How can I rest in Him? Here's his own words to describe it. I cannot tell you how I am buffered sometimes by temptation. Just the attack. I never knew how bad a heart I have. This is not at the beginning of his Christian walk and he solved it all later. This is later on in his Christian life. Yeah, I do know that I love God and I love his work and I desire to serve him only and in all things. I value above all else that, that precious Savior in whom alone I can be accepted but often am I tempted to think that one so full of sin cannot be a child of God at all. I try to throw that thought back and rejoice at the preciousness of Jesus and all the riches of His grace that has made me accepted in the Beloved, the Beloved of God, and He ought to be loved. He's thinking, I should love Him more, but oh, how short I fall here again. May God help me to love him more and serve him better. And then he tells a friend, pray for me. Pray that the Lord would keep me from sin, will sanctify me wholly, and will usually use me more largely in his service. He constantly felt like he was more aware of his sin. The gap just seemed to be broader and broader the more he knew of the glories of Jesus. Have you ever felt this way before? Have you ever felt that struggle? Some who described his life as he began to talk about how he saw things differently later on in his life than when he was in that low spot. Some described his life this way. He says, seeing him now, he's now a happy Christian, <laughs> which meant like when I saw him before, he was miserable. It's just like some that would look at our lives and, and we don't look happy. We seem really anxious. That's how Hudson Taylor would have been described. What flipped the switch for him? What, what made him find a sense of happiness and joy in the Lord? He described it as looking to Jesus. Seeing Jesus. Staring at Jesus. 
and believing that Jesus was all that he needed. Here's the image he used. Some of you might know the image of Jesus saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. This image of of Jesus as one who is fully rich and abundant in all resources, and he is the vine, but Hudson Taylor talked about it. He says, like, I'm just a puny little branch. I believe that Jesus is a vine that's filled with all refreshment and all joy and all satisfaction. But how do I get all of that refreshment out of this wonderful tree into me, this tiny little puny branch? And he described it as, I just, I feel like, you know, I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to pull more. How do I get all of that goodness into all of this badness? How do I get all this bigness into all of this smallness? How does that happen? And then Hudson Taylor realized the image was all wrong. Jesus is not just this vine that is now asking this branch to strive and to pull and to get all this goodness out. No. Jesus is the vine. He is the branch. He is the soil. He is the rain. He is all in all. And we are not asked to strive to get more of Him. He has come to us and He dwells in us. He is richly supplying everything we need. We are not being called to do for Him. We are called to receive what He has already done for us and is constantly doing in and through us. We are recipients. We're not being called to pull and just... We're being called to believe that He is with us and that He is an ever-flowing, never-ending, never-diminishing stream of all-satisfying love for you and me. How would it change our thinking if we believed He was present and that He was sufficient and that He was good? He would never leave us and He was an ever-flowing stream of love for us at every moment of every day. I believe that's what this passage is asking us to meditate on. I believe that's what the author of Hebrews means when he says, let us run the race that is before us looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What does it mean to look at Jesus? I mean, you can't see him right now. You can't. And so we look in the Bible and we see his character and his nature We see His work for us. I believe the Scriptures gives us these physical images so it's almost like we're holding Jesus' hand and we're walking along the street and He says, oh hey, you see this river over here? I'm going to teach you a lesson about the river. Because you can't see Him, you're going to look at the river and it's going to point you to Him. He says there's a river whose streams make glad The city of God, the people of God. You can see this massive city sitting by this beautiful river and he wants you to look down at the stream and say, how does that teach us of the abundant presence of Jesus in our life? So that we're no longer striving to get what God has already given to us. What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, friends, I do believe he's given us the image of a river and I'm going to meditate on it with you a little bit so that this will help you think about the all-satisfying supply of Jesus. This is, this is an exercise in looking to Jesus by studying a river. I believe that's what the passage wants you to do. 
wouldn't use an image if he didn't want you to think about the image. So, what do we know about rivers? Well, here's my cynical mind. (laughs) I'm riding my bike, and the first thing that comes to mind as I'm listening to some of this, the first thing that comes to mind is this passage. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I'm riding. There's the Noose River over here. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And then the next place my mind goes is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is, Blessed is the man who sits not in the counsel of the wicked or see the scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night, and then he will be like a what? A tree planted by streams of water. Okay, that image is meant to say, I want to be like this tree planted by a stream of water that flourishes and blooms. But here's what comes to my brain. I just rode past two or three trees that have fallen over. And I'm like, what good did being near the river do for that tree? And I'm thinking about my own life. What if I don't meditate enough? Yeah, that's a tree and a noose river. What if I don't meditate enough? What if I don't spend time with God enough? What if my faith is not enough? I'll just fall. But here's what's beautiful about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is this. As you read through the Psalms, you and I are not the blessed man because we can't perfectly delight in the law of God all the time. There's only one. It's found in Psalm 2. It's the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ Himself. So when it says be like a tree planted by streams of water. It's calling us to trust that Jesus is that perfect tree who will never fall down, perfectly refreshed. And as we trust in him, we will be like trees planted by streams of water. We won't fall down, not because we're going to do enough for God, but because he's already done enough for us in Christ. Jesus is the tree. When we're in him, we will be planted firmly, securely with everything that we need. So my cynical mind is thinking of all the exceptions. Well, here was another exception. After Hurricane Matthew, I was riding my bike out through there, and the river was overflowing its banks. I mean, it was massive. But there was a few weeks later when there was so much that they were trying to dam it up the water, and then the, the river looked really, really low. And so I'm like, well, sure. If the waters are overflowing, then... I have everything I need. But what happens in seasons of drought? And I look at a river and I say, oh, that river's not flowing very well. So I think, okay, what is, how does that translate spiritually? It's like, oh, well, God might lack supply or he might not show up in this moment. And that's what Psalm 46 is pressing against us on. Don't have that cynical thought. Know that he is abundantly present and there's no drought in Christ. Here's a verse that helps us, Psalm 65, verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich enrich it. The river of God is full of water. This is written for the cynical mind like you and me that says, God might not show up, and if he shows up, he might not have everything I need. You might not say it, but that's how you feel. That's how we operate. Here he is an ever-flowing river who always supplies what we need. Now, this is why Galatians 2 is so beautiful. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. But what? Christ lives 
in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. My faith is in the Son of God who loved me so much that he died a criminal's death that he did not deserve. He stood in my place. He took all of my sin and shame and guilt upon his shoulders and he bore it for me so that by faith, by faith, if I just say, I trust you, I cannot fix myself. I cannot strive enough to fill the fullness of you. You must give to me. I need you. If you trust him, repent of your sins and trust him, He doesn't stay outside of you. He comes and lives inside. And as he lives inside of you, he is living inside of you as a never-ending, ever-flowing river to make you glad in God. This is what the scriptures teach. So there's five images that I just want you to look at real quickly about a river. I want you to think on it. When he uses a river, what is the river meant to tell you? The river is powerful. Look at this image of a river. It's, sorry, the powerful one. That one, that one. There's the powerful one. I mean, if you're in this river, you're not going to stop those waters. There's no way. Those are the kind of waters that would lift houses and carry cars. Like, this is powerful water. So when you're called to think upon him as a river, don't think upon him as lacking. Think upon him as powerful. He's able to give you everything that you need. The river also gives direction. It gives direction. The river has a current, and it guides you where you need to go. Sin is when you try to run against the current of God's love. You try to forge your own path. You don't trust that he's taking you where you need to go or that he will be good for you as you go. But you try to fix it yourself. You try to control your circumstances. You try to go your own way. It will leave you exhausted. It will leave you without hope. Instead, turn. Turn and ride the current of his love. Hudson Taylor used the image of the people that he would send out to run errands for him. He was like, they don't care whether they're going to a famous place or whether they're going to a not famous place. They trusted this. Wherever he's going to send me, it's where I need to go, and that he was going to give me all the resources I needed to get there. So I'd give them money. They would go. They would do what they need to do. They would come back. It didn't matter where they were going. And how about that for us? It doesn't matter our destination. Can we rest in Christ enough that he is the river who is taking us where we need to go? He is guiding us where we need to go. That's how we are made glad is when we trust that he is guiding us where we need to go. The river also brings nourishment. The river brings nourishment. There's a tree planted by a stream of water. It's big. It's beautiful. And that water is just constantly feeding those roots constantly feeding it so that it will grow fruit and bear fruit in its season. The leaves will not wither. You've got to have this image in your heart and your mind that as close as those waters are to that tree, it is feeding that tree. Our God is closer. He's feeding you. He's nourishing you. But not only that, 
A river brings peace. What does Psalm 23 say? He will lead us beside what kind of waters? Still waters. Peaceful waters. There's some pictures. If you're looking at a river, it's just like, it's just so still. It's a sense of peace. And as you stare out at that river, some of the gladness is just knowing that God has you. You trust His sovereignty. You trust His love for you. He's got you. It's this burden lifted that you don't have to carry anymore. You're not being asked to pull all of His goodness out of Him. He has come in all of His goodness to live inside of you. Rest, abide in Him. He brings peace. And all of this could be summarized by joy. Some people use a river to kayak down. Some people, they fish in it for fun. Some people just sit and stare at it because it's beautiful. There is a river. God Himself. That is making us glad because he abundantly is with us. And we're just being asked in Psalm 46 to think on these things. That's what he says. Selah. Think on it. It's the simplest words but the most profound exercise. To look unto Jesus. Are we looking with physical eyes? If so, then we'll say, there's only five loaves and two fish. But if we look with spiritual eyes, we will see abundance beyond number. Dwelling inside of us, working for his people. And so, if I asked you, who do the scriptures say this river is in our hearts? It's the Spirit of God. Listen to John 7, 38-39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Once again, once you begin to see it, you realize that this Christian life is about trusting and receiving what he has done. And as he flows and works in you, you rest, you abide, you don't walk around anxious, it flips fear on its head. Because you know He is with you. And the more you walk in that peace and experience Him as an ever-flowing fountain, the more you overflow in love for others because you just want others to taste and see that He's good. You want others to treasure Jesus above all. And that's where the psalm ends. We treasure Christ above all because He will be exalted in all the earth. Look at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Even the psalm is asking you to look with your eyes. Look at the works of God. He's brought desolation on the earth, but He's also made wars to cease to the end of the earth. And He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And the response is this, be still. Be still. Not do more. Sit with and know that I am God. Because when you know that I am God, you will know that my promises are sure. I will accomplish what I said. And what did he say? I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in all the earth. And then he repeats what verse 7 has already said. The Lord of hosts is with us. It's repeating verse 1. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
This call here is a call for the nations, the people of God, not just one group, but all the peoples of the earth to treasure Jesus above all. And he says, one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's saying, I will be exalted in the earth. I'm exalted now. I will be exalted. Be still. Know that I am this God and this ever-flowing river should flow out of you to the nations. This is partially a fulfillment of Genesis 12, that you will be blessed, that you might be a blessing to the nations. And here's where I get that. John 4, 13 through 14, and we are done. The word says this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the essence of mission in reaching lost people for Jesus. It is so trusting in the abundant presence and never-ending stream that Jesus is for us that we overflow in springs of water to others. This is why we speak. We speak because we treasure Christ above all. Let's pray. Father, I feel so puny sometimes. The more I look at your greatness, the more aware of my sin that I am. Oh, how I need you. I hate that I get angry and that I get anxious. I hate that there's a gap between what I know to be true and what you have promised for us in my experience. And Father, I just ask that what would happen in this moment right now is that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we gather as a church, we have one aim that unifies us above every other thing. And that is that we treasure and adore Jesus above every other treasure. Father, I pray that what would happen in our hearts in this moment would be a journey of trusting your abundance and that we would stop believing that you are scarce in your presence or in your resourcefulness. And that this would begin a journey of looking unto Jesus and meditating on all of his works and his beauty. He's a refuge and a strength for us. Father, please, may we rest in the vine. May we rest in you, the good shepherd who satisfies all of our needs. May we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, please, change our hearts and in so doing, unify us that we might speak of your name until you come again. Father, thank you.